This podcast is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school, with locations across the United States and online. Become a recognized expert and join the wine community and gain the confidence to do what you love with the winner of the WSET and Riedel Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on any Napa Valley Wine Academy classes when they use the code NVWA podcast at the time of enrollment. That code again is NVWA podcast. For more information on all the courses offered, visit NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. That's NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. It was during one of those time periods where I was in New York, I was auditioning and just waiting for my next gig to come along. And I just thought, you know, I've always been kind of intrigued by wine and I really don't know anything. And so I just went and took an amateur class, not a WSET class or just a like very, very basic like wine 101 class. And I came home with like literally pages of notes and like my now husband, but he was then my boyfriend. I sat him down and I was like, I just made, I read everything to him. I made him just sit on the couch and listen to me talk for two hours. Cause I was like, you're not gonna believe what happens. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, this is the stories behind wine a podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influence the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfuss, and in this episode, I sit down with Vanessa Conlon, a Texas native and Napa resident who has a career that spans both opera and wine. Vanessa shares her unique journey in the wine business, from how she went from being an ensemble member of Puccini's La Boheme on Broadway to discovering her love of wine that ultimately led her to the Master of Wine program and becoming Vice President of the online wine retailer, Wine Access. This is Vanessa's story. So my name is Vanessa Conlin. I'm the head of wine for a company called Wine Access. So we are based here in California, but we are a national e-com direct-to-consumer wine retailer. Been around for over 20 years, and I've been with them for about three. And yeah, I love it. It's best job in the world. That's great. That's great. So... Really interested in hearing about how you got in into the wine business and how it all started. Rewind us a little bit back to the early, early years. Where did you grow up and what did life look like in, in the early years? Well, I did not grow up with wine. So I actually, um, I come from a family of classical musicians. My dad is a, a symphony and opera conductor and my mother was an opera singer and now she does fundraising for arts organizations. But you know, I spent my whole childhood sitting in rehearsals with the orchestra, and I love music, not just classical, like all kinds of music, and still do. But I just, you know, I grew up thinking this was my path, and I never really considered anything else. My parents love wine now, and they would have it maybe once every couple months when they had people over for a dinner party, but it was not a part of my life at all in my formative years. I uh, studied music. I have a master's degree in opera. I was a singer. I went to Manhattan School of Music and Boston University for grad school. And after that, I went back to New York. I was kind of a starving artist for a while. Ended up traveling a lot, actually, for opera. Had the opportunity to travel to Europe. And that's really probably the first time I really started getting interested in wine. Mm -hmm. And then I spent some time in a show on Broadway. I was in Baz Luhrmann's La Boheme on Broadway. And that was a nice steady gig, you know, a Broadway show where you've got like your solid eight shows a week. But the rest of the time as an opera singer, it's very gig to gig. You go, you travel to a specific city, you rehearse, you have your performances, and then you're done. And then you're kind of back in between again. It was during one of those time periods where I was in New York, I was auditioning and 
just waiting for my next gig to come along. And I just thought, you know, I've always been kind of intrigued by wine and I really don't know anything. And so I just went and took an amateur class, not a WSET class or just a like very, very basic like wine 101 class. And I came home with like literally pages of notes and like my now husband, but he was then my boyfriend. I sat him down. And I was like, I just made, I read everything to him. I made him just sit on the couch and listen to me talk for two hours. Cause I was like, you're not going to believe what happens. Like, and it just like, I just fell in love with that. I thought it was so fascinating. And I really just made a switch. Like I said, I still love music, but I thought, wow, I grew up with that, but like, I don't have to do this the rest of my life. This other thing seems really cool. Mm-hmm. And I just made a complete switch. So I started at the very, very <laughs> bottom rung. You know, I like worked for minimum wage at a, a wine retailer in Manhattan just to like learn and use my discount. And uh, I ended up being the, the manager and the buyer for that store after several years. And then I was the buyer for a second retailer and then also the wine director for a wine bar. Wow. And then during that period, of, I was, of course, studying. So I went through all the, the levels of WSCT through the diploma. And it was in 2010, my husband and I decided we wanted to make a little bit of a lifestyle change. But I also really wanted to be around vineyards and winemaking. Okay. I felt like that was the one part of not the one part, but a big part of my wine knowledge that I just never was living in Manhattan, never really had that opportunity. So we moved out here to Napa in 2010, and I worked for a number of wineries over the course of the next several years, Arietta, Donna Estates for the longest period. And that was really my opportunity to be around the vineyards and, and the winemaking. And then sort of went back into retail, but in a much bigger <laughs> broader way with Wine Access since we're, right. a, we're a national company. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating story. So what was it like growing up with parents that were heavily involved in the music business? I mean, did you ever feel pressure that that was the path you had to take or? I would say I didn't so much feel pressure as it just seemed like they're so passionate about it that it just was sort of contagious and mm-hmm. I still really love it. So It was great. It was fascinating. I got to meet a lot of really interesting people. I mean, I definitely had a sort of different childhood sitting in orchestra rehearsals and studying a lot as a kid. But I loved it. And I I actually feel like, in a way, it almost led me to wine because I think that there's so many similarities with music and the appreciation of wine. You know, you're using your senses to experience something you're experiencing in a way that no one else in the same room with the same bottle in front of them or listening to the same song is going to experience it the same way. And it actually, I felt like, was the perfect background. You went to music school in Manhattan. Yes. Manhattan School of Music. Yes. Normally, it takes someone four years to finish that program. I think right. you finished in three. I did. Okay. So you are someone who, would you classify yourself as a type A personality? Someone, <laughs> when they see something, they attack it yes. full force? Yes. Yeah, 100%. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but yes. <laughs> How was that? Was that tough? Three years? I mean, a four-year program, you hear most people taking five years of college, right? And when it's a four-year program. So you did it in three. Were you driven to do that? Talk to me a little bit of why three and not four. Yeah, I've never been someone who's really good at relaxing. I'm always looking for the next thing to learn or the next challenge. So honestly, I just was really motivated to like get that and then see what was next. And so I just took extra classes and took classes over the summers and just knocked that out. That's great. <laughs> and then you knew you wanted to continue. Obviously, the passion was there to, to continue and go on to, to graduate school. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So, you know, I went to BU and um, got my master's degree there and had a lot of that was more opportunity to kind of be on the stage there at the grad school level. It was great. And I loved Boston, but, you know, Manhattan was kind of my jam. So mm-hmm. 
I went back there. And and for a musician, too, that's where all the auditions happen. So you yeah. kind of need to be in Manhattan. But the, the thing I think also about opera that's different about the wine business is I think it's easy to look at like from the outside and say like, oh, that's such a like social thing or, you know, being an opera singer. But really, like it's very insular. Mm -hmm. So I would spend so much time just by myself in a practice room or with my head in a score, like learning the music. And you have to be so hyper focused on your body as your instrument. So no spicy food because I'm going to get reflux. You know, don't drink alcohol because you'll get dehydrated. Don't go to a crowded room and speak loudly because you're going to lose your voice or God forbid you get sick and you have to cancel like you don't get paid. So mm -hmm. while I love the music, I think that I was really missing that sort of more social aspect that mm -hmm. I love about wine, where it's really it was meant to inspire conversation and bring people together. Mm -hmm. So as much as I loved music and yeah, I was highly motivated, once I found wine, I was like, oh, this is it. Sounds like a lot of parallels, though. I mean, your body, at least your palate, is your instrument when you're talking about wine, right? True. So taking some precaution there to make sure you protect that instrument might be some parallels True. as well. True. I actually like, but I, I tease my mother because she's become a, like a really expert chef. But like growing up, we had like three dinners that we alternated and they were all very bland. And so I, I tell her I have her to thank because I had a, a palate <laughs> that was completely <laughs> untouched. You had a blank slate. <laughs> I had a blank slate. That's exactly, great. Exactly. Exactly. But um, yeah, it's funny, though. I think I mean, I definitely before taking, for instance, the practical exam for the MW, I would take precautions, but it it still felt different. I mean, I tried to be much more relaxed about it with tasting wine than I was when I was singing. What brought you joy in the music business? What was it that you most connected with and that made you smile? I think that sort of visceral reaction that music can instill in people. I think my very favorite experience was, so the Broadway show that I was in was actually a full opera in Italian, mm -hmm. but on Broadway, directed by Baz Luhrmann, the movie director. I mean, working with him was an amazing experience, but I think that experience was the most fulfilling because it was opera, but in a, on Broadway, it attracted an audience of people who I think had actually never heard a, like an actual full orchestra or experienced opera. And it was just amazing after the show to see the people lined up outside the stage door, you know, who had just had their very first experience and were like blown away and realized like, wow, it's really not this intimidating art form that you have to know something about before you get started. And I'm sure you see too, I think sometimes people feel that about wine, like, mm -hmm. oh, I have to be an expert or otherwise I won't know. I'll look stupid or I won't know what I like. And it's like, no, like you just dive in there, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and same thing, like you'll have that first reaction, whatever it is, yeah. but um, it'll be unique to you. Must have been a great, I mean, an electrifying experience to be up on stage in front of large crowds, I can assume, right? Yes. Um, on Broadway. Yes. What did that feel like? I mean, was that energizing? Was that draining? It was definitely energizing. I mean, it's difficult sometimes, you know, because just again, like your body is your instrument. So some days you're like, ah, I'm so excited. I've got all this energy. And sometimes you're like, wow, I really didn't get very much sleep last night. Mm -hmm. But you kind of what I did learn from that is like you get up, you do it. And sometimes in certain situations or, you know, you're afraid. Mm -hmm. And it's just like learning that feel the fear and do it anyway mm -hmm. type thing that has, I think, actually came in handy with something, again, like the exam, you know, Mary Margaret McCammick, MW, right. we've talked about this because she was a competitive swimmer. I think that like for her having that or for me having this background of having to like deal with adrenaline and nerves and then just mm -hmm. stay focused, I think was helpful. That's amazing. So you speak about wine mm -hmm. as well, right? Conferences and you've shot video and so you represent wine very publicly. Do you think your time on Broadway and, and a rich history of performance makes you a better presenter 
more I, confident I think in those I, situations? It makes me more comfortable for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. it's definitely I really love talking about wine. I love seeing like people's eyes light up. Then I'm, I think about like, again, my first experience. So I must have looked like that. And then the class were like just wide eyed, like, wow. So, yeah, I love that. I do. I do think it probably helps. Yeah. 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 So you take this class, you take mm-hmm. this uh, at the new school, mm-hmm. right? And this interest gets awakened. What do you do next? I mean, you take this one class, you come home, you tell your husband. Mm -hmm. You're obviously full of excitement about it. Yeah. How do you explore that passion? So I didn't know really where to start. So I think what's great now is there's so many resources online. You can find podcasts and all kinds of information online. But I wasn't really sure. I mean, I bought some books. You know, I enrolled in WCT. And then I would just go ask people like my local retailer, pick the brains of like, hey, you know, how did you get into being a wine buyer? Like, what was your path? And how did you get here? And I just had no idea. Again, I didn't grow up in a wine family. I was like, how do you even get started? Mm-hmm. And for me, really, the WSET was key. And I started that class in New York with Mary Young Mulligan, and she's amazing. So um, that really helped. But really, I just... I. <laughs> kind of just had to swallow my pride and start at the beginning yeah. and just say like, hey, I'm going to just be on the floor of this retailer and just try to soak up as much as I can and take it from there. What year was that? What year would you say you started? I'd say that's probably around 2006. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So WCT at that point is not very well known, right? It's It's grown in its reputation and at least in its awareness since then. How did you stumble upon it? How did you stumble upon Mary's School International Wine Center? How it, did it was really asking around. So like I said, I just go into my wine shop and ask the buyer like, hey, what would you recommend? Mm-hmm. And I think it was one of those people said, oh, you should really check this out. I think they maybe done that course. And I kind of knew the first day I was there. I mean, I'm really like I'm kind of a big dork at heart. Like I love studying and books. And I just walked in. and I was like, I love this. This is so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so did you know at that point that you wanted to pursue a career in wine or were you just still pursuing a general interest in wine? I was definitely interested in it, but again, I didn't know anything about like what the path was, how to get there. And again, Mary was great with that, with advice. I was considering it, but I think it took me a little while to, I don't want to say give up music because it's still such a part of my life, but I almost had to mourn it like losing a person in a way because it was like such a part of my life. And even though I was really excited about wine, it felt like this struggle for a while where I was like, well, I, I should be studying studying my wine books or researching this or that. But then I'd be like, oh, but I should also be practicing because I would spend like six hours a day mm-hmm. practicing, practicing, studying music. And after a while, I was like, I can't, I'm sort of living this double life. You know, I have to make a choice here. And so, yeah, I really kind of went cold turkey. I just one day I packed up all my music and like put it in a box and put it in the back of the closet and was like, okay, like that was a part of my life that was really important to me and will always be part of me. But like, this is my focus now, you know, and I want to be singularly focused on that. That's a big decision. Yeah. (laughs) And and I know oftentimes in when you're pursuing wine studies and we come across many and spouses play an important part, Mm -hmm. right? In the the supporting role and being generous with their time Mm -hmm. to allow you to pursue that higher level of knowledge. What was it like with your husband when you made that decision and you said, you know, I'm putting music behind and I'm moving in a different direction, especially since you both come out of the music. Yeah, he was incredibly supportive, but I think he could tell how passionate I was for it and how interested I was. I think for my parents, raising me to be this musician and being musicians themselves, it took them a little bit longer to sort of wrap their heads around it. Mm -hmm. Not that they weren't supportive, but I think they were just really confused. But no, they love wine and they're very excited that I took this turn. That's great. Did it make it somehow easier that you knew that your husband was going to still be in the music business 
that you still had some connection to it? Did that make that decision maybe easier or? I think it made it harder, actually, <laughs> to be totally honest, because, you know, we still had a circle of friends in New York that were all musicians. And I think for a while there, I would sort of get in this crowd of people and be like, I don't know how to describe who I am anymore. You used to be like, oh, you know, I'm a soprano or this yeah. is my upcoming gig. And it sort of defines you in those circles. And so it felt uncomfortable for a while, honestly. Yeah. But then, of course, like as I started to learn more and get confident and really realize like, oh, like I can have a career in this, then that's where the confidence came. That's great. So what was the first job you did in the wine business? <laughs> well, I had worked in restaurants when I was a starving artist. So I, I will say I did like sling some wine on the restaurant floor. But no, it was really it was a retail, this retail shop. So it's called Poor, P-O-U-R, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And yeah, I just started at the bottom. But I was really glad I had done WCT because I remember I walked in and she sort of gave me this like on the spot verbal quiz, like what's the variety in this? Or like if I came in and asked you for this, like what would you be your recommendation? I was like, oh gosh, thank goodness I took that class. That was it. I also worked for a while for a distributor, someone who focused mostly in wines from the Loire Valley. And that's really like, I really, really fell in love with French wine through the Loire because of that job. So really worked through up through retail mostly. And then, as I mentioned, for the wine bar as a wine director. Yeah. So you're in New York. You've gotten your diploma with the WSET. You've started your career in, in working retail and, and distribution. How do you end up in Napa? Well, How does that come to pass? So there's a phrase called leap in the net will appear which became very important to me and that part of my life because I was literally just looking on winejobs.com for Napa because I was like, I really want to be out here in, in wine country. And Napa was the ideal place for us to move because my husband is a classical pianist. So we had to be close to a major city. So this is ideal. And there were like all these jobs listed out here. And I would send my resume or I would call and they'd be like, great, well, can you come in tomorrow for an interview? And I'd be like, oh, I'm actually, I live in New York. And they'd be like, click, you know, so... So finally, after a number of those, I was like, I just have to go. So we rented a house out here, sight unseen. And my husband still had a gig he had to finish up. So I had to come out by myself. And I came out here, literally I had a suitcase. I had my laptop and my cat. <laughs> and I got here and got an air mattress and was kind of was camping out in this house. And all the jobs dried up. There was wow. like nothing listed. And so finally, there was a listing for a shop here. And I had sort of vowed that I was going to do something other than retail when I got out here, but it was to be the buyer for a retail shop out here. And actually, that ended up being a total blessing because coming out here, I didn't know anybody. I was still wrapping my head around like these names on these bottles that I'd seen on the shop shelves in New York, like, oh, these are actual people, but like, what are they like? Are they nice people to work for? Are they not? And so that really gave me the opportunity to meet a bunch of different winemakers and vintners mm -hmm. at that shop because it's right up in St. Helena. And that's how I met Fritz Hatton, who's the proprietor of Arietta. And yeah. he, I was his first non-seller employee for Arietta Wines. Wow. I worked out of their garage. Okay. <laughs> so a garage story, right? Not <laughs> yeah. tech industry, but. Yeah, very glamorous. But that was it. And, you know, Andy Erickson is their winemaker. And that was a fantastic first winery experience to yeah. have. And do you think that helped you, those connections helped you springboard into other opportunities? Oh, for sure. I mean, when I left Arietta, Fritz was really, he was very supportive. It's such a tight community out here. Everyone knows each other. So definitely. And he's one of the probably most famous wine auctioneers. Mm -hmm. And so knows a lot of people. And yeah, absolutely. That was very helpful. That's great. Are you at this point in, in your wine studies, mm -hmm. are you on pause? You finished your diploma. Have you started to think about the MW? I paused after diploma, you know, partly because I did make this cross-country move. And frankly, I needed a little time off. I was feeling just like I need a break. And I sort of had in the back of my mind that I would do the Master of Wine, but I hadn't made a decision. 
And then we kind of sort of started off this talk earlier talking about sort of being type A. And, and I thought that was a good idea. And after a really very brief break, I was like, OK, I'm now I'm bored. <laughs> now I need another challenge. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned Mary Margaret McCammick earlier. She's a good friend of mine and she had started the program. Mm-hmm. And so that was really helpful, too, to talk to her and hear about her experience in it. And yeah, so I applied and yeah. started that. So it, it can be a solo endeavor, right? Mm-hmm. Studying for the MW. Mm-hmm. But it also can be a very supportive endeavor, right? When you surround yourself yes. um, with the right people. How important was knowing other people, knowing Mary Margaret, being part of a tasting group? How did that help you pass the first two parts of the MW program? It was key. What I love about the MW program, one of the things I love about it is you're only competing against yourself. So it is a can be a very supportive community to be part of. In Napa, I felt so lucky because we do have a number of people around the Bay Area who are all studying and you know, we would come at the Napa Valley Wine Academy every weekend doing our mock exams. That was really important. I mm-hmm. think learning from others, but also, frankly, just so many wines to taste. And so having the ability to pool our finances to be able to try the amount of wines that we wanted to was crucial. Yeah. What's the hardest part about the MW program? What would you say for you? What were some of the challenges you had to overcome? That's a good question. I love studying and I'm pretty organized. So that wasn't so much a challenge. I'd say the challenge is finding a way to not let it completely derail your social life. <laughs> My husband asked me, because you know, we're heading into the holidays, and he's like, why don't we get invited to as many parties anymore? And I say, it's, well, because I said no for like four years straight. But I think that having that discipline to say like, well, I know everyone else is out like partying or whatever, but like mm-hmm. this is really important to me. Mm-hmm. So um, just learning how to handle those situations, I think. And I do remember like, when Mary Margaret was studying before I started the program and we had invited her to, I think it was like a Labor Day party or something. And she was like, no, I'm studying. And I was like, what? What are you, do- what are you talking about? It's a holiday, you know. Yeah. But then when I started the program, I was like, oh, I get it. Like you mm-hmm. have the figuring out what to prioritize. Yeah. Yeah. You obviously form strong bonds, right? You and Mary Margaret have a strong bond. Yes. And I think that goes back to your diploma days. Yes. You took it yes, together. Yes, we, we did. We yeah. did. Yeah. The relationships and the bonds you you build during this process, right? You're going through intensive basic training, if you will, almost mm-hmm. of a military precision mm-hmm. to become an MW. Mm-hmm. Those relationships that you build during that time, talk to me a little bit about those. Are those important? Are those long lasting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear, these, hear your thoughts. Oh, honestly, these are my friends for life. I mean, whether some people, again, it's not everybody passes, but like going through that experience together, I mean, I'll stay in touch with these people forever. I think it's, there's something about being at your very best and being at your very worst mm-hmm. and being open in front of these people about that. Cause you know, we'll be, you'll have a great day of like nailing all the wines and then you'll have a totally humiliating day where you just feel really, really defeated. And being around those people, having that support and feeling the comfort level to be able to fail in front of people, frankly, and then get back up on the horse again. There's a closeness that comes from that that I've never experienced. So not to understate it, but this program is challenging, right? It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of resources and you make a lot of sacrifices. And then there are some that time out Mm -hmm. or hit pause or are not successful in, in their pursuit. Having been someone who is successful in that pursuit, is that hard to watch people fall to the wayside? And is that demoralizing? Does that keep you going? Does it drive your hunger more? I mean, I feel terrible for people who time out or don't pass. But I mean, I can't speak for them. But I'd say like 
if I had to stop at any point in the program, I think I could still walk away and say, like, I've learned so much, not just about wine, but about myself, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that um, I think no matter what you leave, having become a better, smarter, stronger person. You moved out here, you work with Fritz Hatton, Mm -hmm. and I assume your next position that you go to is is at Donna? At Donna Estates, yes. So very high-end, very prestigious winery in in Napa. Do you start your studies during that time at Donna? Yes, that that, that was when I started. Did you know what you wanted to do when you achieved the MW? Was it a pursuit just, it's often compared to to climbing Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. And when you ask someone, why do they climb Mount Everest? And they said, well, it's there. It's a challenge that I wanted to prove to myself that I could do. And then you have other people say, no, I have very specific goals as to what I want to accomplish with this pursuit. Where were you in that? I was somewhere in the middle. I didn't have a specific end goal in mind in terms of like, this is the job I want, but I just wanted to have options. I wanted to know that I had done everything I could to be best set up in the wine industry to be successful. But the thing that really, honestly, I remember being in the lab one day at Donna Estates and talking to the winemaker and he was talking about pH. And I was like, I don't understand. (laughs) And I just remember that moment. I was like, I need to know what he's talking about. And so part of it was just really that personal drive where, like, I wanted to be part of the conversation. I didn't Mm -hmm. want to be the person standing in the corner like, oh, God, don't ask me because I don't know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to stand alongside the winemaker and have an educated conversation about whatever, SO2 or whatever you wanted to talk about. Right, right. So historically, when you look at the Institute of Masters of Wine, it has been a very male-focused organization, right, with a disproportionate number of men Mm -hmm. achieving the MW program. You know, anecdotally from our school, we see a large amount of females entering in into the wine business mm-hmm. and and pursuing certification and education. What's it like in, I'm assuming we're now at 2009, right, when you're in the program and mm-hmm. you're starting your pursuit. What was it like being a woman in, in the program? To be totally honest, I didn't even think of it. I really didn't. You know, I sort of thought like we're all here with a drive to be here and I didn't distinguish being male or female. You know, I Again, because you're kind of only competing with yourself. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who you know doesn't know the exam format, you're a candidate number. So whoever's grading your exam, they have no idea if you're male or female, how old you are, what you're wearing that day. So I didn't really factor it in. Mm-hmm. And there was such a supportive community out here. And I had Mary Margaret and my mentor, Amy Christine, yeah. and that were female. So I just, yeah. That's I, great. It sounds very democratic. I mean, in that fact that you are anonymous, right? Mm-hmm. And you, everyone is given an equal yeah, equal chance. Yes. So you are successful in two very challenging parts of the exam, right? Fretting the theoretical. Yes. Um, and which one did you pass first? Remind me. Theory. Theory. Okay. And then you pass practical. What does that feel like? I mean, you are one third the way done and probably done with two of the sections that people fear the most. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that day you, you get the news that you've crossed the that finish line. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, I was really excited. I think what I wasn't prepared for, and I think most people looking in who haven't started the research paper portion is you, you think like, oh, you're basically done. And like, you're not. <laughs> you're definitely not done. I actually found the research paper to be the hardest part. Wow. Um, because even though you are for the exam, you're alone. You're alone mm-hmm. with your own head and your own palate and your own knowledge. But like you're in a room full of people and you're studying with people and then you start the research paper and you're kind of like off on this island by yourself. And, you know, we used to do mock exams on Sunday studying for practical and it would be Sunday and I would feel so like, oh, I miss the group. And 
how did they do today? And what were the wines? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm just like by myself writing. So I loved the research. I loved learning, but it was definitely the hardest part for me. Yeah. Yeah. So now we fast forward. You're in the final stage, right? Mm-hmm. You're working on your, your research paper. I'm assuming you submitted and, I, and you're waiting. Yep. Anxiously yep. awaiting. I'm waiting. Okay. So we're all crossing <laughs> our fingers and we'll know you'll be successful. I get the sense of that and everything you've accomplished in your, in your life with grace and passion. You now probably have a very one of the most enviable jobs, right, in the wine business. You work for a company that sources wines from around the world. You are the buck stops at you are making the decision what wines get sold. You get to jet away to to fancy wine region destinations. I mean, is this a dream come true? Could you have imagined that you would be here? No, I honestly never thought. I never imagined this. And I have to say, I think I have the best job in the world. Like, I love this. I love it. So, no, it's really exciting. I mean, we write all original content about the wine. So I'm constantly like doing a lot of travel, but talking with producers. And so it kind of, it also fills that side of me that's always wanting to learn more because we're, we're constantly just writing about new places and new wines and winemaking and different producers. And I actually really love also being the sort of advocate for the consumer because I think that it's such a blessing that there's so many places and ways to buy wine these days, but I also think it can be really confusing. Mm -hmm. And so I really find a lot of energy from thinking like, how can I talk about this wine in a way that's going to be informative, but not pedantic and educational, but accurate and entertaining at the same time. So I really love it. So talk to me a little bit about advocate for the consumer. What does that mean to you? Other than you just described writing in a way that is digestible and understandable. But when you're talking to a producer, are you carrying that consumer mindset in your mind and saying, okay, I'm really going to evaluate these wines from a different standpoint than I would maybe from a wine expert standpoint? I think that Frankly, a lot of it, when I'm tasting the wines, it's using, frankly, what I learned from the MW practical exam, which is not about what I like, because I definitely do have preferences. Mm-hmm. But we have consumers in 44 states across the United States and of all different comfort levels with different price points and regions and styles. So I'm kind of taking my own personal preference out of it and just saying, would I be excited about this wine at this price? Like, would I think that this wine was over delivering? Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm saying, like, as a consumer, that's my job is yeah. to say, like, if I bought this, I would be really happy. So mm-hmm. I'm always that's always front of my mind. And then in terms of the presentation of the content, I'm also thinking, like, what can they read that's going to make them feel empowered? Mm-hmm. So, like, if they brought this bottle to a party, they could confidently talk about it because mm-hmm. that's what it's very similar, actually, to when I was pursuing opera, where there's this intimidation factor and people are just afraid they're going to be wrong or make the wrong choice or it's not the right thing to pair. And even when I was a singer, I would fight really hard for people to say, like, you don't have to be intimidated. Like, this was meant to just be enjoyed and by everyone. And it's the same with wine. You know, mm-hmm. I want people to feel not just comfortable, but like excited and empowered to talk about it. That's great. What regions are you most excited about? I mean, where do you think the opportunity exists for the consumer to still explore? Beyond the usual suspects. Yeah. I mean, there's some really interesting. We're about to offer a wine from the Canary Islands. (laughs) That was, I definitely had to learn some new names of varieties for that. So I think there's some really interesting island wines coming up. I think in the United States, even looking at like the Sierra Foothills, uh, a lot of these sort of names we know from Napa who've been very successful here, like Andy Erickson or Mm -hmm. Helen Keplinger. Napa's planted out, essentially. You can't really do start a new project here. Right. So I think that you'll see a lot of people sort of investing heavily there. So that's a region I definitely have my eye on. Okay. 
What would you say to someone looking to get in the wine business and pursuing a career change or starting their career in the wine business? What piece of advice from your experience would you share with them? Make sure that your spouse is supportive (laughs) (laughs) would be number one. But I think take a minute and figure out how you digest information. Because I think, again, there's so many ways to learn now. There's podcasts, there's books, there's webinars, there's obviously still classes. And so like for me, I wanted taking classes was what resonated with me. But I'd say like, think about how you're really going to be successful and what your study patterns are and then tailor it to that because everyone's so different in that regard. But that and, and then just taste really broadly. Don't get stuck in. That's the thing about studying, I think, is like I probably drank more wines that I didn't like over the last four years <laughs> just because it's not what I would choose to drink. So it's like I have to taste this over and over because this is not what I've gravitated towards, but I have to learn it. So yeah. be open to trying new things. Great. You still have a lot to accomplish in the wine world, I have a sense, right? Just looking at you and your energy and what you've accomplished so far. What is on your bucket list to still accomplish? We have a number of projects at Wine Access. So something I've never done is really... I've worked at wineries, but we were making a wine with Mayan Kuchiski. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm really excited because I've never actually been a project that I'm spearheading, been start to finish. Like, I'm obviously not making the wine. Mayan's making it. But being a part of that whole process of, like, choosing the design and what's the name. And I selected the vineyard sources with him. So that's something I'm working on now that's really exciting and new. That is exciting. And can you talk about the project a little bit more, about what wines you were? It's isn't going to be, we're starting off with just one wine so far. So in 2019 vintage, so it's it's Napa Cab from mm-hmm. three amazing fruit sources, which I can't disclose. But yeah, so uh, name has not been selected. I definitely need to figure that out <laughs> soon. <laughs> but we had to get through harvest first. So. Yeah, yeah. Sounds very exciting. So yeah. we, lo- we definitely look forward to following yes. that project. And thank you. thank you for taking your time and sharing your story with us. It's fascinating. And like I said, I think there's a lot of great things to come. Thank uh, you. And more of your story to tell. So we'd love to have you back sometime in the future. I would love that. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. Again, that email address is sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website, napavalleywineacademy.com forward slash podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at napavalleywineacademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the stories behind wine. Until then, thank you for listening.